0: Have your Bibles, why don't you join me in the book of Romans, chapter six, this morning. And if you do need a Bible, the men in the aisles here have some copies of the scriptures so you can follow along with us, not only listen, but read and visually make sure the Word of God says what it does for yourself. You'll get much more out of it that way. So just get their attention and they can give you a copy of the scripture. And if you don't have a Bible, certainly feel free to keep that and read it during the week and utilize it romans 6 last week we finished up chapter 5 together so this morning that has us in chapter 6 verse 1 and we're going to endeavor to look at romans 6 1 down through verse 14 so if you are turned to romans 6 would you stand together with me out of reverence for the word of god and we'll read our portion of scripture should walk in newness of life. For if we've been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more, death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. And Father, we just humbly pause to ask for your help and assistance to be able to understand the word of God. Lord, we thank you for this book that you have inspired by your Holy Spirit to be profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction and training and righteousness that as men and women of God, we could be thoroughly equipped for every good work to serve you, to know you, to honor you on this planet. Lord, we ask that your spirit now would help us. Lord, you know what that means for me and for each one of us in this room. Lord, we humbly ask for your grace and for your spirit to give us understanding and that you would be our teacher and anoint and bless your word as we study it. And we ask in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, in marriage, certain relationship changes happen in your life as you enter into that powerful and important new relationship in marriage, as a result, some of the prior relationships that once existed in your life before the marriage commitment are then affected and should certainly as well be discontinued. Now, in the same way that that's true regarding marriage, that's also true spiritually in a sense. When we enter into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, when we choose to believe upon him as the savior for our sin and we embrace him as the Lord of our life, as a result of that new relationship, that marriage to Jesus, if you would, as we enter into that new relationship, as a result, our relationship to other things changes as well. Uh, particularly, our relationship changes uh, toward the world, our relationship to death changes, changes, our relationship toward the afterlife changes, and one of the most important dramatic changes is we also enter into a new relationship with sin. We enter into a new relationship with sin, and our text is addressing, if you can tell from its reading, that very issue, the Christian's new relationship to sin, or the Christian's changed relationship to sin that has dramatically been affected as a result of the establishment of a relationship with Christ. At conversion, at salvation, this passage tells us that a believer's relationship to the power of sin has been changed and we should experience that change in our walk with Christ. That power of sin has been broken. You saw as we read this morning, it says here that we should no longer be Slaves of sin. Again, no longer be, meaning we once were, but we should no longer be slaves of sin. He says later in the passage that sin does not have dominion over you, it no longer has dominating control over our lives. Now, this begins, chapter 6, a new section. If you like to break apart the books of the Bible, this kind of begins a new section in the book of Romans that deals with what we would often call the sanctification of the believer. Uh, Romans chapter 3 through 5 was dealing specifically with what we call the justification of the believer. It was teaching us how though we are all sinful and all guilty before God, no difference, we all sin and fall short that as a result of putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and his finished work of dying for our sins upon the cross, that God, when we put our trust in Jesus Christ and accept his gift of forgiveness and righteousness for us, that God declares us judicially innocent and righteous in his sight, though we are guilty, He pardons us and declares us righteous in his sight because of our faith and trust in the finished work of his son, Jesus Christ. And he gives us a righteous standing and access into heaven. Now, Romans 6 through 8 begin a new section which refers to the sanctification of the believer. Justification was a one-time past act. At the day of conversion, at that moment historically, boom, the Bible says you were justified by faith. It's not a continual process of working towards making yourself right or acceptable to God. No, the Bible says when you trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, you were justified, declared righteous. That is your position. You receive that the day of your conversion. Sanctification is an ongoing process that continues as you walk forward with Christ, as we yield to the Lord and yield to the power of His Spirit, whereby he then gives to us victory over the power of sin. And that's an ongoing process throughout our Christian experience until we ultimately experience the glorification of the believer, which is when you get out of that body of sinful flesh and you enter into heaven and you shed a body of sin once for all. And are in heaven's perfection. So, sanctification is that ongoing process of obtaining victory over sin, becoming more Christ like as the Spirit's changing us and helping us to live righteously in a relationship to Christ. Now, Romans 5, in our last section together, had just described to us the result of Adam's fall. And how as a result of Adam's fall as the representative of all humanity, the Bible says all of us then being born of Adam have now, in a sense, become inherently sinful. That is, we're born sinful from birth. We don't become sinful. We're born sinful, and that's why we sin automatically. And we also are subject to death and mortality because of what we've inherited from Adam. Yet, Jesus Christ's coming in a body of flesh as a man, has undone, we talked about, everything that Adam lost for us in the Garden of Eden. Jesus Christ has, in a sense, undid all the problems of Adam, broke the power of sin and death, so that we can enter into a new spiritual condition through a relationship with him, which gives us relationship to God. Remember, he said there in verse 21 of chapter 5, that last verse, so that as sin reigned in death, Even so, now grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So through receiving the gift that Jesus offers, we now can be forgiven of our sin, we can become right with God, we can have the assurance of eternal life. And remember, in contrasting then, the abundance of grace offered in Jesus with the abundance of guilt and sin that we are all guilty of, Paul wanted to emphasize, he did in chapter 5, how the abundance of grace in Jesus that's offered to us is much more powerful than any abundant amount of sin any of us can be guilty of. Remember he made that interesting statement there in verse 20 of chapter 5 where he said, where sin has abounded, grace has abounded much more. The point Paul was making, even when it's evident the level of someone's guilt of sin is extremely abundant. They're a super sinner, the Bible says, well, listen, there is superabundance of grace that far surpasses the amount of any sin in anybody's life. That there is no amount or level of sin that is greater than the amount of grace that Jesus Christ offers to forgive and to cleanse and to transform and save a life. Now, having heard where sin is abundant, that there's an abundance of grace to be received. Paul now addresses in chapter 6, verse 1, continuing on, a wrong mindset that he knew as a man that people would develop hearing a statement like that. That's why he then says in verse 1 of chapter 6, what shall we say then? That is to this concept of where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin so that, notice, grace may abound? Notice Paul understood how human reasoning can become so distorted and so twisted and how we have this capacity to automatically think wrong thoughts. So notice he addresses it head on. He just brings up the issue and he realizes that a wrong outlook could develop from that statement having just stated that great amounts of human sin provide God times when he can show great amounts of his grace to demonstrate his grace. Paul here envisions someone automatically asking, well, wait a minute. If a person is more sinful, that just reveals how much more gracious and forgiving God is. And if you're telling us that if a person sins abundantly, then that allows opportunity for God to really demonstrate the abundant amount of his grace, then, uh, I mean, shouldn't we just keep sinning more? Shouldn't we just sin all the more and as much as possible uh, sink to the depths of sin because doesn't that sort of set the stage if we're a really good sinner for Jesus to show how much he's a really good savior and doesn't that I mean doesn't my sinfulness actually help God I can be I can be a good advertisement for God I mean, I can really advertise for the world. Listen, you can live like a mess, but doesn't matter. the grace of Jesus is so... So I'm, isn't my sin actually helping God out? I mean, the more sinful I am, then in a sense, as I participate in sin, that just sets a platform for God to show His amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Saved a wretch like me. And I can be a good advertisement for God, so shouldn't I just continue in sin and provide God a help in that way? Now, I have to say this. Isn't it amazing... Isn't it absolutely amazing how our human mind can actually think that way? That we actually are so depraved that we would actually look for an opportunity to selfishly do what's wrong and just abuse God's kindness and grace in our lives? And that we have the capacity as human beings to then even not just abuse God's grace, but that we'd even then want to kind of justify it with some kind of a spiritual reasoning? In essence, that's what Paul's envisioning here, Saying, hey, well, I'm just going to take that and run to the races. And so what if I'm trampling and abusing God's grace? I, I can even find a spiritual justification for how, in a sense, hey, we I know I'm doing this, but it's actually kind of helping God out in the long run. The end justifies the means, doesn't it? And it is amazing. Paul says, is this really what we should do in response to God's grace? Should we continue in sin so that his grace can abound? Should we take the abundance of God's grace that's available as a license to sin, Paul's saying? Look, he answers his own question there in verse 2. Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul says, verse 2, certainly not. Uh, the old King James says, God forbid. The idea is absolutely not. Perish the thought. Far be it from us. The reasoning, Paul says, that's absolutely ridiculous. Not only that, he says, it dishonors the lord and the grace that he shows hebrew 12 says it tramples on jesus and his shed blood is an unworthy thing and insults the spirit of grace and paul then goes on in verse 2 to ask a more important question which really then becomes the basis of this next line of spiritual reasoning and instruction look in verse 2 he goes on to say how shall we who died to sin, live any longer in it. Now that question there is basically to get you and I to consider a spiritual truth. And that spiritual truth is this, is that when we put our faith in Jesus to become our Savior and we embraced His Lordship in our lives, a supernatural and miraculous change happened in our lives. The moment of salvation when we accepted Jesus Christ a miracle took place, a supernatural transformation whereby there came an end of an old life, like a death process, the end of an old life, and the start and beginning of a brand new life. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away, behold, all things become new. Now again, reflecting back on what Paul just taught in context in Romans 5, in Adam, as a natural descendant of Adam in humanity, Satan and sin, as we started life, it did reign over our life. The powers of darkness ruled over us and sin and death was directing and controlling our lives and whether we realized it or not, that was our true condition. This morning, if you've not yet accepted Jesus Christ, whether you realize it or not, or whether you would want to even acknowledge or admit it or not, until you are under the reign of Jesus Christ, you are under the reign of sin and Satan, which will dominate and control your life. You're enslaved, the Bible says, to that condition. You don't have the freedom to live differently. The capacity's not there. But when we embrace Jesus Christ, King Jesus, and the reign of grace comes to pass in our life and we're then in Christ the Bible says old things pass away and all things become new there's this transformation whereby at that point the power of sin that once ruled over us we no longer have to live in continual sin Paul's going to say in this chapter we have the ability to live differently we don't have to live under the influence and reign of sin because we now have a relationship with sin, that has changed. That relationship has changed because we have died to that. Let me try and illustrate this. There's probably no perfect illustration, but let's say, for example, you were living as a slave underneath the, the, the domineering control of a tyrannical, evil, wicked king. And you were enslaved to this tyrannical, cruel, domineering king and they have total control over your life. You have no freedom, no choice, they rule over you, but if then we or they died, would you agree that would change the reality of their rulership over your life? Let's say at one point you were enslaved to this cruel, tyrannical king that took away all your freedoms and choices and just ruled and reigned over you. If at some point you died then at that point, their rulership power over you has been discontinued. It's dissolved. Now, they could stand over your dead corpse and say, get up and water my chariot. Get up and do this and get up and do that. But do they really have any power over you anymore? You're dead. The relationship's been severed. They can demand and they can bark orders, but the truth of the matter is the reality, their power to control you has been discontinued. It was lost in the fact that you died. So because of your death, that power, in a sense, that reign has been broken. Listen, the Bible's teaching us that's what happened to us spiritually. In Christ, in the same way Christ, Paul's going to say, died to sin, we as well, our old life, that natural condition where sin had the power of darkness ruling over us, we've died to that. That's why Paul's saying here in verse 2, how then, he says, if that's the case, how shall we who died to sin live any longer? And he says, how can we live in that old way of life if what has happened, which it has, transpired? How can we continue in a life of sin without change? And the answer is this, there's one way that can happen. That if as a believer there is a failure to properly realize or to fully know or understand what your spiritual standing is in Christ Jesus. It tells us in Colossians 1 verse 13, very important verse, it says this regarding Jesus, He has delivered us from the power of darkness. Let me say that again. Jesus has delivered us from the power of darkness. Listen, that is why here in Romans 6, going forward now in these verses, Paul seeks to help the believer really grasp and understand this reality of the fact that Jesus has broke the power of sin to control and reign over our lives, whereby we had no choice before we were saved, but he's saying, but now you do. That power of domination and enslavement, it's been broken in Jesus Christ. And he wants us to understand that Jesus didn't just remove the penalty of sin. He's also released you as a Christian, if you're in Christ, from the power of sin to control and dominate your life. Look what he says. He goes on in verse 3. He says, or do you not know? Again, this was the problem. If you don't know, you you live according to the old way. But he says, look, you must understand this regarding your spiritual condition. Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism in death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, look, we also should walk in newness of life. So take note here, God wants us to know that at salvation, our life was totally, if you would, submerged or submersed into the spiritual waters of the person of Jesus Christ. You see what he's using here as a way of illustrating this in verse 3 and 4? He's illustrating this reality of our life being placed into the life of Christ with the concept of baptism. And baptism is a process where something is submerged down into fluid. That's where the word comes from. Submersing something into fluid with the reason being for identification purposes. Again, imagine taking a a white garment and taking that white garment and dipping that white garment down into a vat of red dye. Well, when you take a white garment and you submerge it down into the vat of a fluid of red dye... The process then results in what? The condition of that garment is completely changed. Its identity is completely changed because of the submersion that took place in the process. And what the Bible is teaching us here, verse 13, is we must know that in conversion, a spiritual baptism has happened in our lives as Christians the day of your salvation when you accepted Christ, a spiritual baptism happened. Verse 13 he says here, or verse 3, excuse me, do you not know that as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So he speaks of as many of us who have accepted Jesus Christ, put our trust in him as being, look, he says verse 3, baptized into the person of Jesus. He says you were Past tense, you were baptized into Christ Jesus. In Galatians 3, verse 27, Paul says it this way. He says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. In the conversion experience, the Bible teaches us that our life, in a sense, is immersed, it's submerged, it's completely placed into the person of Jesus Christ. And not just the person of Christ, but more than that, our life is immersed into all the experiences of Christ as well. Every experience of Christ, his, his life, his death, his resurrection, and even his present life, that our life is put into his, we now share in life with Christ as one, and we receive all of his experiences as if they're our very own. In the same way that white garment is transformed into a red garment and its condition has changed, the same idea. We were baptized into the life and experiences of Christ. So even as Jesus once died, we also share in his death to sin. And even as Jesus has risen from the dead and now has a new quality of life as an ascended savior and a a risen victorious king, we also, the Bible says, are given new life Spiritually, and therefore, our participation in water baptism, which is something we're commanded to do, our participation in water baptism really just reflects or portrays that spiritual reality. Again, as we think of how someone may be water baptized at the shore, when we do a water baptism, because of the spiritual experience, of having been baptized into the life of Christ and all his experiences, and that's a spiritual thing that's happened the day of your salvation. That's why God commands us, I believe, to observe outwardly the practice of water baptism. Because basically, as we observe water baptism, we are portraying outwardly what has happened to us inwardly and spiritually, how we have been baptized into the life of Christ. So God asks us to obey water baptism in a sense to strongly reinforce and solidify that truth to our hearts that the old man was crucified with Christ and that we've raised up as a new person in Christ as a result of our salvation. And God wants to solidify that truth to our hearts so that we walk it out in faith then. And he wants to utilize that water baptism to testify publicly to others that that is exactly what's happened to this man. His old life is gone. He's dead. We've buried him. And this is a new person now. She is a new person now. Raised up with Christ. And that's why we're baptized, I think, the way that we are to identify or indicate that. Look what he says in verse 4. Therefore, and I think this is a reference to water baptism. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life so notice water baptism is it not it's an outward illustration that portrays or pictures jesus's experience and how we've entered into that because what do we do we go out into the waters and we take you and and we we lay you back and and the waters are like a watery grave we put you down under the water you disappear for a moment just like when somebody's put into a grave and that old life the idea is that old life is is gone I've died to that old person, that old person, I'm dead to that. And when we bring you back up out of the water, it's a picture of resurrection, that you're a new person in Christ, and it's to illustrate that very reality. And notice the end goal, he says at the end of verse 4, is even so, we also, just like Christ, should now walk in newness of life. See, the end goal... of of this spiritual baptism which is then illustrated in water baptism the bible says the end goal is so that we can and let me go a step further we should have a new experience in our life even as jesus was raised from the dead and as a result of his resurrection he lives again but he lives differently he now lives in a resurrected, glorified body in a new quality or a new state as the risen King and Savior. He says, verse 4, even so we also, being joined with him, should now walk in newness of life. That right? is a new quality of life, a new state or condition of life. The Bible is teaching this, that we can and should have a new quality and experience of life as the result of our salvation with christ listen as a christian we should have new values there are new desires that come with being born again there's a a new set of habits and new patterns and a new way of thinking a new way of behaving, a new way of speaking. Uh, The point that the Bible is making to us here, this concept of that we should now walk in newness of life, I think this is the key. There is opportunity and there is power, listen, to live differently. There is power to change. Salvation isn't about God forgiving you of your sin to leave you just like you were. So no, salvation is God pardoning you of your sin but also destroying the power of sin over your life that leads you then to participate in a new way of life where you develop new values and new desires and you speak in new ways and you act and behave in new ways and you have the power to live differently. You have the power to be a different person and to change in the ways that God wants to transform you. Paul goes on, verse 5, to say, for if we've been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also should be in the likeness of his resurrection. Again, verse 6, knowing this, he wants us to know this, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, and that we should no longer be slaves of sin. So, Paul here pictures now our new relationship with Christ in verses 5 and 6 like a marriage commitment, like a marriage relationship. Notice he says in verse 5 there that we've been united together with Jesus. We've been united or joined together with Jesus in his death and resurrection. It pictures the union that happens in a marriage ceremony, where two people, the Bible says, become one flesh, uh, their lives are joined together and shared as one. And we're going to see as we get to Romans chapter 7, specifically Paul is going to illustrate our relationship with Christ as a marriage. That we have been married to Jesus, that he's the bridegroom, that we're the bride. And again, the idea is that we've said yes to the invitation of Jesus Christ. He loves us. He asks us to enter into a relationship with him spiritually and eternally. We at some point choose to accept his invitation and to say yes to him and to enter into that commitment with him. And our lives are joined and united with Christ as a bride is to her husband. And again, by way of illustrating in our minds, just like a a wife when she becomes married to her husband, what happens? Her identity changes. When my wife chose to say yes to me and entered into a marriage commitment, her identity changed. Her last name changed. Her old identity disappeared and she took on a brand new identity. She embraced my identity. That's part of the marriage relationship. In the same way, when a marriage relationship happens, when a wife chooses to marry a husband, she then shares in all aspects of his life. Everything that was once his to experience, guess what? It's now hers to experience. She experiences everything that was his experience because the two lives are joined together as one. And the Bible saying this is the same thing that's happened spiritually with us and Jesus. That when we chose to enter into a relationship with Jesus, our identity changed. You're no longer looked upon as, as, as sinner, you're looked upon as saint. You're now righteous in Christ from God the Father's perspective. Your condition changed and everything of your experience changes because you're now joined with Jesus so therefore you have access to experience everything that Christ experiences. Fellowship with the Father, eternal life, all those things of the experience of Christ become our experiences as well. That's why he says in verse 6, knowing this, that our old man, there's a euphemism of the old life, our old man was crucified with him, with Jesus, that the body of sin might be done away with and that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Again, indicating how Christ paid for the penalty of sin, yes, but he also broke the power of sin from ruling and reigning. He uses this idea now in verse 6 of our old man being put to death or crucified with Christ. When the Bible uses this term, our old man, he's not talking about your husband's lady, so be careful of that. do will never misread that. The, the, that was a poor joke. Sorry. The old man is a reference. It's a reference to the old life. Again, if you're not familiar, I'd encourage you to read passages like Ephesians chapter 4 and Colossians chapter 3 there where it describes this concept of the old man indicating the old person who you were in Christ, or who you were before Christ, that, that old man, that old life. And then the Bible speaks of a new man referring to who we are now in Christ. And God wants us to understand. Look, that, that's the idea. It, two completely different people. Listen, Christianity doesn't teach uh, recycling. We're not renovating the old life. No, the, the Bible says no. It's a death to an old life, and it's the start of a brand new life. Again, the whole concept, being born again, when you're born, it's, it's a birth, it's a new beginning. So the Bible says there is an old life, and that old life is put to death. A new life begins, again, the purpose of being united with Jesus, so that old life could be crucified and put to death, he says, going on in our verse here, so that the body of sin might be done away with so that the power influence of sin's rulership could be done away with that term done away with in the greek there is katagero it literally means interesting term it means to be rendered paralyzed or to be put out of business what an interesting concept that the bible's teaching here that jesus as a result of his work and now our union with him in marriage the bible says that jesus disarmed and paralyzed the power of sin from ruling over your life and dominating you as a slave that that sin which once reigned over you and controlled you that bully of sin that was way stronger than you that intimidated you and you had to succumb to it and submit to it and you had no power to overthrow that bully well jesus says you know what that bully's now paralyzed he can still say things to try and tempt you but he, give me your lunch money you're paralyzed man <laughs> You, 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 you can make comments and, and solicit me to still submit to you but Jesus says no but that's been paralyzed it's been rendered inoperative that power to control has been broken the purpose verse 6 notice at the end there so that we should no longer be slaves of sin there's a, a phrase worthy of underlining in your Bible that we should no longer be slaves of sin that tells us two things first of all it indicates what we once were We once were slaves of sin. That's the biblical reality. We once were enslaved to the power and influence of sin controlling our life. We were under its domination. At one point, the power of sin controlled our lives and we did not have an option. We didn't have a choice. We did not have the freedom to live differently, as the Bible says you can as a Christian, We did not have that opportunity. Our passions and desires, they mastered us and we submitted to them and we succumbed to them. And I'll tell you for one simple reason, because we didn't have the capacity to do anything else. I didn't have the option to say no to sin. I was a sinner and I had no power to do anything other than live according to my sin nature because that power reigned over me, the Bible says. And as a result, that's why sinners sin. That's why we live that way. Because we had no power to live different. We were slaves of sin and we could not do anything otherwise. But notice, this also indicates to us that our relationship to sin has changed in Christ. If you're a Christian and you're born again, the Bible says that we, however, because the power of sin has been disarmed, paralyzed, put out of business, we should no longer, he says, no longer, that's the key, be slaves of sin. Now listen, though we may still stumble and fail, and we sin periodically, I understand that, don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. What the Bible is saying is that a Christian should not be enslaved to the power of sin. It should not rule over us in domination and control whereby we are dominated or controlled by sin's power in our life in some area whereby through some sinful habit or practice, we should not be as a Christian living enslaved to some area of sin. Sin should not rule over us. That is not God's will or design because that power has been broken in our lives. Are we going to stumble and sin periodically? Yes, of course, I understand that. The next few chapters indicate that. But the Bible is saying we should no longer be slaves of sin. We should not be enslaved to some sinful practice or sinful habit whereby it's controlling us and dominating over our lives as perhaps a lifestyle before once had. Verse 7, he says, "...for he who has died has been freed from sin." There's the idea, he who has died has been freed from sin. Death brings an end to somebody's prior relationships or prior experiences. At death, there's a discontinuation of what a person was once experiencing. Uh, when a person is alive, uh, they have connections to other people and relationships, friends and relatives and loved ones or a spouse. And when a person's alive, they have connections to other relationships. And those other relationships have a direct influence on them, sometimes a very powerful influence upon them. But the reality is this, when death happens, those influences of those prior relationships and you were alive, those influences come to an end. When you've died, those old relationships don't influence you anymore. Likewise, spiritually, while a person is alive, they naturally struggle with temptation and sin. That's an ongoing process and it's influence and temptations but when a person has died there's no more power of persuasion with, with sin anymore. Again, again, if I can illustrate, think with this, no dead person is struggling with the temptation to sin. I, I at a point in my life through various years on occasion of you know work second jobs to help you know provide extra resources, keep the wife at home and do the best for the family and At one point in time for a few years, one of my part time jobs I worked a a secondary job and it was actually serving and working at a funeral home and when I worked at a funeral home part time which actually was honestly one of the most lucrative part time jobs if you're looking for something additional, uh, part of what I did was I actually did pickups or what we call retrievals, which is basically when somebody would die. My job was to go with someone else, depending upon how large the person was as well, sometimes multiple other people, and go retrieve the dead body, to go pick up the bad body. It was quite an interesting thing. When my kids first heard about that, they're like, Dad, you're putting people in the back of your station wagon. Ew, that's gross. You know, just, no, We do it. It's legit. But part of the job was picking up dead bodies, and so I was around dead people a lot. And, and let me tell you this. I assure you, You cannot tempt a dead person to try drugs. It don't work. Not that I tried it, but but it wouldn't work. You can't tempt a dead person to take a drink. You can't tempt a dead person to be provoked into anger and and to lash out at you. You can't tempt a dead person to look at a filthy magazine. You can't tempt a dead person if you leave something there to see if they'll steal it. It won't work. Why? They're dead. They're not struggling with temptation to sin because they're dead. And see, the Bible is pointing out this reality. Look, the Bible is trying to say, you've been freed from the power of sin's reign. He says here, you've died to sin in Christ. Spiritually, God wants us to see, look, you've been liberated from sin's power through sharing in the resurrection of Christ and the result, more of that, of having died together with Christ. Look what he's going to go on and say. He's trying to drive this point home. He says, verse 8, now, if we've died with Christ... He who has died been freed from sin. So if we've died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more, death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he now lives to God. So again, verses 8 to 10 is emphasizing that our spiritual experience is, is completely shared in every way with what Jesus experienced. We died with him spiritually in a way so longer, we no longer live according to that old way of life. We now have a new life where we, like Christ, live unto God in a new relationship. He tells us here in verse 10 that Jesus died, notice, one time, to overcome the penalty of sin and also to overcome the power of sin. Therefore, he says, since Christ has been raised from the dead... He says, he dies no more. And notice the Bible tells us here that Jesus died not only for sin, but look at the language there in verse 10. It says that he died to sin. Yes, he died for sin. That took care of the penalty of sin. But the Bible also says that Jesus died to sin once for all, and now the life that he lives, he lives to God. What the Bible is teaching us here is this. Hebrews tells us Jesus was tempted in all points as we are, yet he was without sin. In other words, Jesus, in a body of flesh, as a representative of humanity, just like Adam was a representative of humanity, Jesus lived on this earth. He was tempted in every way that you and I are tempted as a man. But Jesus never succumbed, he never bowed the knee to the reign of sin. He lived the sinless, perfect life in obedience in every way and then his death in that sinless, righteous, obedient life to the Father that refused to bow the knee to sin, he then died in that obedient, righteous condition as once for all sealing the reality that he would not bow the knee to sin and he died to seal that decision to refuse sin. Now, what the Bible is trying to tell us is the guaranteed reality is sin doesn't have power over Jesus. It has no control over Jesus. And at that point, he's saying, verse 10, in the same way he died to sin once for all, the life that he lives, he now lives to God. He's going to say, that's to be our experience. We're to embrace the reality of what Christ has done for ourselves. That's why he goes on, verse 11, to say this. These are the applicational truths. Likewise, you also... Since you're united with Christ, baptized into Christ, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That term reckon there is an accounting term. It means to consider something as in the bank in such a way whereby you're so confident that the resources are in the bank, you'll pursue the tra- transaction because you believe the money is there to back it up. Again, you know, we, we have a, a debit card that we utilize, and if you have money in your bank account, you pursue a transaction. You put your debit card into that machine with the confidence that you believe the resources are on the other end that will cause the transaction to go through. And the Bible's saying, look, reckon as an accounting term. Act upon that the resources of the power of Jesus Christ are there in your spiritual bank account to overcome temptation, to overcome sin, to be dead to sin and instead to be alive to God, to live in that way. And see, the Bible is saying this is a spiritual reality for the Christian and he's saying we must know this. So that we realize it, that we recognize it, and that we live responsibly to it. He's going to say later in the chapter, it's an issue of just yielding to the resurrection power of Christ that's available to us. By faith, believing this to be true and and living upon it in a way whereby we trust that we can be under the influence of the Spirit and therefore resist the temptation of sin to walk victoriously. He goes on, verse 12, to point the point out again, therefore do not let, look what he says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. So again, understanding our new relationship with Christ, we're to refuse to succumb to sin's temptation from dominating over our lives. As I said earlier, unlike before we were saved, we now have a choice. This is the point we must grasp as Christians. Unlike before you were saved, you now have a choice what you're going to do when you're tempted with sin. You have the opportunity now Though sin's presence and persuasion, it's still active. I understand that. Please take notice. The Bible does not say that sin has died. Sin's alive and well. Have you noticed? (laughs) It doesn't say sin has died. It says we have died to sin. Which means that the power and persuasion of sin is there. It's going to solicit you to do evil. It's going to tempt you to do wrong. But through Jesus Christ, you can yield to that victory In such a way whereby, he says here, you don't have to let sin reign in your life. He says, you should not, I should not obey it in its lust. You have an option. It's not your king anymore. Jesus is your king now. So you can refuse those lusts to obey Jesus instead. He says, verse 13, and do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness. So here's the practical advice, how do I walk those spiritual realities out? Okay, the Bible's telling me that I have freedom from the power of sin. So, well, how do I how do I live that out? Well, Paul says every day, every hour, we have a decision to make. Who and what are we going to present the members of our body to? Our eyes, our ears, our mouth, our mind, our hands, our feet. We can present them to the power of sin and unrighteousness and do what's wrong and still yield to that old sin nature. Or we can present ourselves unto God every day and say, God, I want my life and everything about my life to be used for you now. Because your spirit is alive in me and therefore Galatians 5.16 says walk in the spirit and you won't fulfill the lusts of the flesh. See, the best way to proactively avoid sin is to pursue walking in the spirit. It's not to draw lines in the sand and say I won't do that anymore. I won't do that anymore. I won't do that anymore. No, no, no. The best way to avoid sin is to walk in the spirit. Present yourself to God. God, I'm yours this day. I'm going to read your words speak them. him I'm going to live and try and walk out a life in the spirit and he says if you walk in the spirit and present yourself to God then you won't be able to present yourself to another master so as we proactively walk in the spirit it helps us to resist walking in the flesh Paul says verse 14 in conclusion for sin shall not have notice dominion over you for you're not under law but under grace so again he reiterates that we should, in our spiritual experience, not be under the domination, the rulership of sin in our lives. Again, a great statement. It speaks profoundly of an important truth. Sin shall not have dominion over you as a Christian. It should not rule over your life. Though as Christians we may stumble and sin periodically, it's not God's will as a Christian that we be enslaved to sin's practice and powers ruling over our lives. The reason is because there's spiritual victory in Jesus. There's spiritual victory. Listen, what, what, are, what are some sins that, that we all struggle with? Maybe lying? You don't have to be enslaved to keep on being lying and being dishonest. Anger, fits of rage. You don't understand, I just got a bad temper. I got a bad temper. Listen. Your temper does not have to rule over you. It does not have to have dominion over you. Is it lust? Is it pornography? You don't have to be enslaved to things. Is it fear or worry? You're saying, I just worry a lot. I just always worry a lot. Right. And sometimes your worry becomes sin. But worry does not have to have dominion over you. God's saying, listen, there's freedom, there's liberty. You are not, the Bible says, Under the law of sin and death, you're under grace. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, the Bible says in Romans 8, has set us free from the law of sin and death. There's deliverance, there's freedom in Christ to be able to walk that out. We have to believe, listen, you have to believe these truths. These are important truths. Because it will affect the fruitfulness of your Christian life as you walk these things out by faith. It's like overcoming the law of gravity. Does gravity always exist? Yeah. It's always at work. The law of gravity is always in existence pressing down upon a person. But what does it take? It takes a higher law like the law of thermodynamics or the power of human... It takes a higher law to overcome the law of gravity. Is the law of sin going to try and press against your life as a Christian? Yes. But there is a higher law, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus where you can walk in victory and you can overcome by the power of Jesus Christ. Amen?